Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, he went from being named the best coach in the NHL in 1996-97 to being exiled from the league for nearly a decade, all that in less than a year, and it very nearly derailed his life as well as his career. Now, Ted Nolan is 65. He's back with a new memoir called Life in Two Worlds, a coach's journey from the reserve to the NHL and back. And he joins me to talk about life, hockey, reconciliation, and redemption. You are what you eat, the old saying goes. And for Canadians, that could be an increasingly dubious, dubious proposition. We are eating more and more stuff that isn't really food, at least not something someone from long ago would recognize. They are ultra-processed foods, edible products made from manufactured ingredients that have been extracted from foods, processed, then reassembled to create shelf-stable, tasty, convenient meals. They make up nearly 60% of what the typical adult eats and nearly 70% of what kids eat. That category includes everything from cookies to sodas, jarred sauces, cereals, packaged breads, frozen meals, even ice cream. And a large and growing body of evidence has consistently linked overconsumption of these kinds of foods to poor health outcomes. Chris Von Tulliken has tackled the topic in a book called Ultra Processed People, and he joins me to fill us in. But first, we get the latest on the fast-evolving situation in Israel and Gaza from Global News Senior Correspondent Jeff Semple and Israeli Special Operations Veteran Aaron Cohen. But we'll begin with what's been unfolding in the Middle East because, of course, it's having impacts back here at home as well. Uh, The Israeli death toll from the Hamas attacks on the country on Saturday has risen to at least 1,200, according to an early Wednesday update today. The total amount of Israelis injured has risen to 3,000. Among the dead, three Canadians, the Jewish Federation of Ottawa confirmed today that Adi Vital Kaplun had been killed by Hamas militants on Saturday. The 33-year-old had been living in Kibbutz Holit, a small community near the border with Gaza. She was remembered today as a mother, wife, sister, daughter, granddaughter, niece, cousin, Jewish Federation of Ottawa CEO Andrea Friedman says her family wants her to be remembered for the person she was. We want the world to remember Adi for who she was, not for how she was brutally taken from her family, from her friends, and how society will never benefit from the myriad of contributions that she still had to give. Not that far away in Kibbutz Beri, Beri, Israeli troops are still removing the bodies of dead Hamas militants who stormed that community and killed more than 100 people there. Yotam Kipnis grew up in that kibbutz, and he says he's still searching for family that are missing. I do not know if they're alive or, or dead, and if they are alive, they're probably had, held a hostage in, uh, in Gaza. And that's one of the big question marks still. Here we are five days later is the hostages. How many did Hamas take across into Gaza? Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie said today there are three Canadians still missing. Family have identified one of them as 74-year-old peace activist from Winnipeg, Vivian Silver. She's been living in Israel for many decades now. But Jolie will not confirm whether any Canadians are indeed being held hostage by Hamas. What I can say, though, is we've been in contact with the chief negotiator uh, of hostages in Israel, and Canada will be sending a team of experts to support him and his team. 
So Canada is contributing to that effort as well. It's estimated that Hamas kidnapped as many as 150 people and brought them to Gaza, hostages including children, members of the military, the elderly. Most are civilians, again, captured from those same towns bordering Gaza. Uh, Hamas has said that every time Israel strikes a Gaza home without warning, that a hostage will be killed. Um, And the presence of hostages is certainly top of mind as Israel continues to bombard Gaza and prepares for what could be a major ground offensive. There are some 350,000 troops now. And Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu used very colorful language today, talking about it, uh, talking about a rush to destroy, to crush and destroy Hamas, rather. So what kind of situation does that put the hostages in? What is How is this going to unfold exactly? Aaron Cohen is was born in Montreal. He's a national counter, counterterrorism expert and a Israeli special ops veteran. And Aaron joins me now. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This is not an, uh, an unfamiliar situation to Israel, but certainly the scope of this, the, the hostages in particular, the dynamics here are a bit different as they get ready perhaps for a ground incursion into Gaza. What are you seeing? What, do you, what, are, the, what are your concerns as this is unfolding? Uh, well, my concerns right now are the, are the several dozen hostages uh, uh, who've been taken into Gaza and preserving that life right now. Obviously, uh, the IDF, as everybody has seen, has got uh, several hundred thousand uh, Reservists who are uh, preparing for a major counteroffensive. You've got the Givati Brigade, uh, which is attached to the Southern Command, which handles Gaza. Uh, it's an elite unit. It's equivalent to the United States Marine Corps in terms of capabilities. It's our Israeli Marines, if you will, for lack of a better term. They've got a lot of experience in Gaza. They were in the last Gaza war. Really, it's about intelligence right now. It's about artillery softening. It's about missile hits and, and taking out uh, Hamas infrastructure to, to pave the way for this monster counteroffensive. But the, but the really delicate surgical issue right now is, you know, 40, 50, 60, 80 hostages being held in Gaza. They were dragged into tunnels. The really tricky part here is that Israel's on the clock, and I'll tell you why. Uh, with hostage rescue, you know, it's, it, for every second wasted, you could lose another innocent life. And so... Israel is in the process right now of deploying special operations forces in and around Gaza. They're in there right now. And what they're doing is is they're setting up listening devices. They're scouting buildings uh, to follow up on potential intelligence leads. Uh, our intelligence service, the Mossad and the, uh, and the Shin Bet and the Amman, which is our military intelligence wing, is, is listening to thousands and thousands of phone calls. Uh, we've got special operations forces uh, from another unit called Sheldag, which is the Air Force Special Operations Unit. Uh, Sheldag in Hebrew or in English means uh, Kingfisher, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the bird. And that unit's on the ground. So all those selective missile strikes that you're seeing by Israeli F-15s, F-18s, F-35s, there's, uh, there's operatives on the ground. There's commandos on the ground lazing those targets. And the reason why they're doing that is because Israel uh, adheres to international law when it comes to rules of engagement, unlike Hamas, as we've seen. I don't have to sell that. And then you've got uh, two very elite units right now, which specialize in uh, hostage rescue. You've got the General Staff Reconnaissance Unit, which is Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's old unit. From Entebbe, right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. And June 6, 1976, 103 hostages were liberated by this General Reconnaissance Unit. It's Israel's equivalent to uh, the SAS. Uh, went to Entebbe, Uganda, under the disguise uh, of Idi Amin's personal security detail. They dressed up, they rolled out a mock uh, black Mercedes, similar to the one that the, that the president of, uh, of Entebbe uh, or, or Uganda drove, and uh, went in there and killed several members of the, uh, 
of the German Bader Meinhof uh, terror group and, and Black September. And then Israel did it again. They did it again for the Sabina hijacking, uh, which is the first ever aircraft that's been assaulted by a hostage rescue team and, and took the plane down and rescued everybody. Bibi was on that operation. Israel may not have, inve have invented hostage rescue, but they have perfected it. So this is, a, this is something that they are masters in. And so right now they're preparing for those hostages by get, gathering all that intel while the, uh, uh, the, the regular uh, forces are preparing for, for a monster incursion. There's a lot of pieces happening right now. Right. But Aaron, very, tell me, very technical. Tell me something. In this case, you have uh, the Gaza Strip, where obviously Hamas know what they're doing. There's tunneling in there, and you've mentioned it already. These are two adversaries that know each other very well. Uh, there are obviously some complexities here, given the landscape. People will remember the raid on Entebbe. will remember what happened there, but this feels like a, a different situation. You've mentioned that the clock is ticking. They're obviously moving yeah, these hostages worse. around. Hey, this is worse. Yeah. Hey, this is yeah. worse. And I'll tell you, this is the largest uh, hostage siege in the history of modern warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you've got over 50, 60, 70, 80 people who've been taken and they're being held in multiple structures. And for every second we waste, they're going to get moved around more and more and more. Uh, many of them have probably already been killed. So, uh, yes, we're on the clock. As we get intelligence for those raids, you know, we need to build mock structures to, uh, to, to be able to rehearse it, if possible, so that, uh, uh, the, you know, the, the Israeli SAS and, and, and the Israeli National Counter-Terror Unit, the Imam, uh, uh, the which is another tier one asset that, that you know, one of the top three units in the world. All they do is hostage rescue. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, they boarded the first bus that was ever assaulted in the, uh, in the eighties and, uh, took out, uh, members of, of Hamas and, uh, uh, who hijacked a bus down by Demona. It was called the mother line 300 or the, or the 300 bus line. Uh, uh, uh they, they kidnapped, uh, uh, you know, a bus full of uh, women who were working at, uh, at, at, a, at a plant in southern Israel. And the imam is the one who killed all the terrorists again, like like they broke ground with these types of missions. So these two units right now are prepping where it's going to get crazy or where it's going to get really intense and very dangerous is, uh, uh, you know, Hamas uh, wants Israel to get sucked into this vacuum in Gaza. There's That's right. Traps. There's snipers, there's sharpshooters, there's explosives. There's going to be all kinds of... Uh, a lot of collateral damage on both sides. Israeli soldiers will die. Palestinians will die. And that is the nature of asymmetrical warfare, which is what we're seeing right now. And so uh, uh, what you're about to see right now is Hamas trying to pull Israel into this vacuum, pull them into these towns, pull them into these alleys. And uh, uh, it's going to get messy. It's going to get bloody. It's going to be chaotic. Uh, it's going to be a lot of confusion. But you know what? They say it's the first time Israel's been attacked. Do you see any any scenario in which people are negotiating behind the scenes here for the release of these hostages, Aaron? No, no. The time for negotiations are over. Uh, the only talking that's happening right now is with Israel, its U.S. counterparts, the naval fleet that's been sent down. Uh, the only negotiating that's happening right now is is Iran uh, uh, negotiating with uh, you know how many how many of their Hamas militants are going to lose after the, the six million dollars they threw at this terror organization. The only negotiating that's happening right now is. Uh, Israel, just how we can be selective and how we can be really careful to limit collateral damage to the Palestinian community. Uh, uh, you know, we have no issues with the Palestinians. Palestinians are essentially a prisoner in Gaza. Uh, Hamas forced themselves into that leadership position, and uh, they never had a choice. If you look at Ramallah and you look at parts of the West Bank, those, those, those Palestinians live well. i got to tell you, man, Kikar Menara, which is the center of Ramallah, is a it's a beautiful town now, man. It was a little, a little more torn up in the 90s when I served. But the, the only negotiating that's happening right now is, uh, is, is logistics, intelligence gathering, coordinating assets, and uh, really uh, just about being focused.
uh, you know, there was obviously an intelligence failure here. Everybody knows that. Yeah, that'll uh, be for afterwards, know, right? Yeah, I mean, we saw it. And, yeah, we, we'll, we'll deal with that afterwards. You know, heads will roll. You know, we'll replace leadership, and 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 the hard questions will be asked. But you know, it's not the time to look inwards. It's the time to look outward. And uh, you know, Golda Meir said it in 1973 before she stepped down, and she stepped down for the same reason. You know, we were attacked and we weren't prepared. And you know, Israel got lucky, and Israel was creative, and they were dynamic, and they had pause and audacity and, and chutzpah, like we say in Hebrew, uh, to be able to go in there and handle business after getting attacked from multiple sides. But Golda stepped out and she said something that was very truthful, which I, which I stand behind. We cannot protect every wall, every inch of the wall. We can't, we can't overturn every rock, uh, you know, and we can't protect every hole. We just can't. And the reason why is because that's the nature of this beast. Aaron, you spent time in Montreal growing up. I'm from Montreal originally. We know there may be Canadian hostages. We know, exactly. We, we know there may be Canadian hostages there. We understand that the Canadians are working with Israel. I, I gather that a lot of different countries, and we haven't heard about nationalities, at least not much, about who's being held in Gaza. But I gather that each of those governments is working closely with the Israelis right now to try and make sure that their citizens are okay. Yeah, the, the American, uh, the, the Israel, you know, Israel has been America's forward operating base in the Middle East for the last 20 years in the global war on terror uh uh israel uh you know w- w- we're thick as thieves you know we're, we're still thick as thieves and uh there's any canadians who've been taken your special operations counter-terrorist unit uh they're a fantastic unit they have a lot of experience the canadians listening to me right now uh, uh should only make this really clear jtf2 is a highly skilled unit they're on the level of delta force they're on the level of israel They've got a, they were down in Afghanistan, and they were working with the Americans, and they were working with the Israelis. So you're about, the world is coming together right now, and, 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 and it's unfortunate that it takes this kind of monstrosity to see, uh, to, to see countries coming together uh, and, uh, and unite. Uh, but I think uh, everyone knows the difference between good and evil. And at this point right now, all I can say is stand by, and my messaging will continue to reflect uh, uh, what I believe uh, will be the best of Israel's capabilities. So stand by. Last question for you. You worried at all? I mean, you, you know this world. Uh, I know how prepared Israel has been in the past, but this one feels like, the, you know, this, this is Hamas trying to draw Israel into something, and it could be, I mean, winning winning is not, I don't, I don't think that's going to be an issue, but what, 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 what after? You, I what see after? where you're going. Yeah. I see where you're going. Uh, you know, I, there's always bigger, bigger, bigger things happening in the background. Iran needs to be looked at. China needs to be looked at. Russia needs to be looked at. Uh, you know, there's always larger pieces to the puzzle in, in, in offices and in rooms where you and I don't have the security clearance to sit down and eavesdrop on those conversations. And, uh, uh, you know, but the macro picture is being looked at. And, uh, you know, we're always looking at the big picture. Uh, uh, am I worried? Am I worried? You know what? I, I, at this point right now, I don't have the uh, I don't have the time to be worried. Uh, it's about focus and strength, it's about positive messaging. Uh, it's about sharing information and it's about uh, educating our, uh, your listeners. Uh, and, and everybody needs to know that uh, this isn't Israel's first rodeo. So are we worried? No, we're not worried. Are we, are we, uh, are we a worried people? Yeah, of course. We're Jews. We worry about everything. That's what we do. We, uh, we, we've got some anxiety, but having said that, uh, uh, when it's time to take care of business, this is what we do. We don't have the time to worry right now. We need to be focused. We need to be creative. Uh, and we need, to, uh, we need to dial up our aggression, and we need to do so. Uh, uh, and we need to get our people back. That's what, we're, that's what we're worried about right now. We just want to get our people back. Aaron, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me on. And so Adi's family was willing to have me share her story so that you can have a face of one of those 1,100 Israeli families 
who are in pain right now, who are shattered, all because of the terrorist entity Hamas. That was the Jewish Federation of Ottawa's CEO a little earlier today talking about uh, Adi Vital Kaplun, who is the latest Canadian uh, to have been declared killed by Hamas militants in Israel on Saturday. She was killed on Saturday. The third Canadian confirmed to have died in those attacks that took place just inside Israel across the Gaza border. Uh, 33-year-old Alexander Look of Montreal, 22-year-old Ben Mizrahi of Vancouver uh, were also killed. They had been attending an outdoor music festival near the border with Gaza. Hillet Nurek, a home economics teacher at King David High School in Vancouver yesterday, was remembering Mizrahi as an incredible human being. He was, um, he was a leader and he was kind and um, very community-minded. He, he loved being Jewish. He loved his community. He was always willing to lend a hand. He was... Um, he was just a wonderful human being and such a positive, positive force and a positive influence on, on everyone around him. So you can imagine as the country uh, continues to be on a war footing, as Gaza continues to be targeted by Israel in response for this attack on Saturday, families of many of the victims of this of Saturday's attack have been uh, gathering for funerals over the past 24 hours. That continues. Uh, there was, in fact, a funeral held today for Ben Mizrahi in Israel. And Global News Senior International Correspondent Jeff Semple, who's been on the ground uh, since Saturday in Jerusalem, in and around uh, Gaza, uh, was there as well. And he joins me now from Jerusalem. Jeff, as always, thank you. Hey, Ben. Always great to be with you. Uh, just it's hard from the outside to gauge what's going on in the inside. This is a country that's not unfamiliar with conflict, but this one, this one feels different from the outside. At least it feels different. I can't imagine what it's like on the ground. Yeah, I've been to Israel uh, many times and this one feels drastically different. I think, um, just in, in that like ordinary Israelis feel, um, frightened and feel pain and heartache in a way that that certainly I've never seen. And a lot of them are saying the same thing, right? Like they've, you know, they've been living under existential threat for so long, but uh, have never faced anything like this. I mean, that, that attack by Hamas, not just the rockets on Saturday that they're used to, but uh, sadly, but the, you know, the, the gunmen, the, the going, the, the, the slaughtering of civilians at a music festival, um, you know, going door to door um, in, in some of these communities and, and killing people. Uh, I mean, that's a whole new level of violence that uh, Israelis and, and, you know, most of most of the world isn't used to seeing. And so people here are, are absolutely horrified, shocked and frightened about what comes next. Yeah, you, you were at a funeral today for someone we, we were speaking about yesterday. Ben Mizrahi was a 22 year old from the Vancouver area. He was at that music festival, as were so many who were killed. I think the death toll now is up above 250 or so. But that must have been, I mean, again, funerals now going on. Just the grief, the grief that must have settled over the whole country in the past few days. Yeah, it was a it was a really hard day. We were out at, at um, Ben Mizrahi's funeral, which was uh, extremely well attended. I mean, Ben's uh, from Vancouver. Uh, his family he'd moved to Israel a few years ago, um, but his family, you know, is still in Canada, so they came over 
Um, and Ben Mizrahi had joined the Israeli military, though, as you noted, he wasn't killed on the battlefield. He was, mm -hmm. he was one of the attendees at that music festival, but because he was an Israeli soldier, they, they gave him what they call a lone soldier funeral here, which is uh, a big event. A lot of people turned out and it's a tribute to, you know, the lone soldier, meaning that it's someone who, who came basically back to Israel to join the military, to fight. Uh, someone who you know left their family behind to do that, and it, which is what Ben Mizrahi did. Um, so, but his was one of just so many funerals today, Ben. I mean, we were standing in in a military cemetery in Jerusalem, and there was a funeral happening in front of me, and then there was a funeral happening to my right, and then just around the corner, there was volunteers digging more graves. I mean, they just can't dig graves fast enough. Do you get it? Is is there a sense of anger at all? I mean, I realize the country is pulling together. There's obviously this 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 you know. There's now a sort of national a wartime government, a national unity government in place uh, to conduct this. Uh, they're amassing troops on the Gazan border. But is there a sense of anger here that somehow? I mean, these were people who lived on kibbutzes. These were people who sort of, if you think back to the kibbutz of the '60s and so on, these were sort of those who held the olive branches, to be honest, and they were the ones being attacked here. Is there a sense of anger that they were left this way, that they weren't protected? Yeah. Oh, anger directed at the Israeli government, you mean, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I actually, uh, I spoke with a, um, uh, he's an Israeli, but he um, he lived in Toronto for for several years during his teens. Uh, and he was, he was at that music festival um, that we keep talking about uh, in the early mornings of, of, of early hours of Saturday morning. Um, and he hears the rockets and he thinks, okay, you know, we're used to that and he kind of shrugs it off. And then he hears gunfire and he managed to get away. He's a, uh, he was in his late twenties, but he was a former tight end at a U.S. college football team, uh, extremely fit guy. And he ran for hours. Uh, and he eventually took refuge in a barn and hid there. He said it, several hours went by before he saw an Israeli soldier. Uh, I mean, just underscoring what we've heard so many times that, you know, the Israeli military was caught off guard by this. And, uh, you know, he, as he was saying, what are we were supposed to have this great, powerful military? I mean, what happened? Um, you know, there've been reports that Benjamin Netanyahu was, was tipped off had been given a heads up from some of his allies that this might be happening and yet it was allowed to happen. So for sure, you know, Israelis are reading reports like that and are angry at their government. But, you know, at the same time, of course, uh, most of their anger is, is pointed towards Hamas. Um, and, you know, we're seeing, as you noted, that, that emergency government now, that war cabinet. So Israelis, you know, just obviously angry at their government, but the priority now is to, is to respond to this attack from Hamas. And, and I guess we'll see what comes after. They're mounting, uh, I, I guess it's 350,000 reservists have been called up. Uh, I mean, it feels like a ground war or a ground incursion into Gaza seems inevitable. Is that the sense that you're getting there? I, I think so. I mean, I, I, that's definitely the expectation that, that ordinary Israelis have, no matter who you talk to, that it's not a matter of if, but, but when that happens. And uh, the Israeli prime minister held a, a press conference here late night one uh, where he, you know, his strongest language yet, and he really strongly hinted that uh, ground assault in Gaza is imminent. Uh, his defense minister pledged to wipe Hamas off the face of the earth. Um, so I think, uh, you know, we're seeing those pictures now. We're seeing the Israeli, Israeli military saying they're massing at the border. Uh, it does, it does feel imminent. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's what has a lot of people on edge is, uh, you know, the, the expert commentary on this is that, um, obviously Israel's military is more powerful than Hamas. 
but you know, is it is it powerful enough to do this quickly uh, without an occupation to get rid of Hamas? Uh, I'm not so sure. It may yeah. take months. Yeah, Gaza's no easy place. I mean, it's not big, but also it's 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 there. It's theirs, and then you know they've they've fortified it in ways that uh, sort of sometimes sometimes deceptive when you see the incredible air campaign, the bombings that have been going on of Gaza. Uh, what about the hostages, Jeff? I mean, there's been talk about that. I know you spoke with uh, Vivian Silver's family earlier this week. Um, there are believed to be Canadian hostages, many others still being held in Gaza. There must be concern about them. Yeah, that's right. So we we don't actually know the exact number. Hamas has claimed that it has more than 100 Israeli hostages. Many of them are civilians, um, I believe. And, you know, the, the number of Canadians who were thought to be among those hostages has changed as bodies have been found, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I believe now the latest count is that there are three Canadians who are unaccounted for. One of them, uh, Vivian Silver, who you mentioned. Uh, yeah, I spoke with her son uh, here. He's in Tel Aviv. Um, who gave a harrowing account of the last moments before his mom disappeared. Uh, he was messaging with her on WhatsApp as she was giving this 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 basically play-by-play of Hamas militants coming closer and closer to her home where she was hiding in the last message that she sent to her son that they're inside the house. And since then, that was you know, Saturday morning, he hasn't heard from her. Um, so she's presumed to be among the hostages, but he also hasn't gotten answers from the Israeli military or any Israeli official uh, from her kaputs about whether she, her body might have been found. Mm. Um, so he doesn't have any clarity on that. And, you know, that's part of the problem is that even now, I mean, even as of this morning, is, is the Israeli authorities were still, you know, counting the bodies. Um, and so, you know, the number of hostages sort of remains in flux as a result. But of course, you know, any Israeli ground assault would put would certainly put those lives at even greater risk, one would think. Yeah. And Vivian Silver, too, such an example. I mean, she was she was sort of a, a peace activist. She would help Palestinians get medical service from Gaza, get medical help in Israel. I mean, these were the sorts of people that were being targeted. It's, uh, you know, there's something devastating about that in of itself. Yeah, I mean, obviously, all of this is horrific, senseless violence, but her kidnapping just stands apart as just the sheer, utter stupidity of all of this. I mean, she was a champion for Palestinian rights and the people of Gaza for decades. She launched aid organizations and and was so involved in advocating for peace in the region and also you know, particularly for the rights of Palestinians and the people of Gaza. That was the reason she'd chosen to live so close to the Gaza border. Um, so she had dedicated her life. I mean, even she was in, she was 70, she, I shouldn't say she was, sorry, she is. We're hoping mm-hmm. she's alive, 74 years old. Uh, but, you know, even at that age, according to her friends, she would regularly pick up people from Gaza, Palestinians who were sick. She would pick them up at the border and drive them to Israeli hospitals for treatment. And that was the kind of person she was, and that's the, that's who they kidnapped. I mean, a, a group Hamas who claims to be fighting for Gaza kidnapped one of you know a great fighter for Gaza uh, for human rights. Jeff, just that you were in Ashkelon yesterday. I mean, you get a sort of a sense of, of the the impact of what's happening. There were images coming out of Gaza as well. Um, I mean, it it feels like there are so many innocent people and civilians stuck in the middle of all this hamas would have had to have known what israel's reaction was going to be and yet here we are again watching uh, innocent civilians on both sides of the border and on the gazan side as well being it being you know being the victims in this yeah and uh, that's right and this week we we 
tried to highlight, you know, what it's like in hospitals, both on the Israeli side and on, in Gaza. Mm. And uh, we went to the hospital in Ashkelon, which had been hit very hard. Uh, literally, it was hit by a Russian rocket on Saturday. Uh, incredibly, no one was hurt, but the, one of the corridors in the hospital was completely destroyed. Um, and, you know, staff there were just completely overwhelmed on Saturday. Um, now, you know, days later, they things have calmed down quite a bit now that the Israelis have taken back control of their territory. Um, but even when we were there in Ashkelon reporting on how things had calmed down quite a bit compared to a few days earlier, suddenly the sirens sounded and, and we had to take cover. And Hamas unleashed a barrage of rockets unlike anything certainly I'd ever experienced. It was mm-hmm. just, you know, over and over again for nearly an hour um sort of off and on and of course uh, israel's got its um famous iron dome its air defense system um so most of the rockets are shot out of the sky before they land but some did get through including one that landed just a couple of blocks from us and just shattered um, a neighborhood um so yeah some frightening moments there and a lot you know a lot of destruction but you know even in that neighborhood it's nothing compared to the pictures we see out of gaza right uh, and Gaza, you know, as journalists, we're, we're just unable to get in there. Um, and so we are relying, you know, on on reporters who are in there already. Uh, we've also been talking to, you know, Palestinian journalists who live there, who've been sending us images and providing us with interviews. But, the you know, the pictures there are just post-apocalyptic. I mean, you know, in, in Ashkelon, a hospital corridor was destroyed by a rocket. In Gaza, entire hospitals are being destroyed um and they just you know we're talking about thousands of wounded and um it's just a terrible desperate situation they've lost you know power now the israelis have cut off food and electricity and fuel um and uh, we saw yesterday an egyptian aid convoy that was destined for gaza that had to turn back because of the israeli strikes so it's it's an awful situation and you know we've been talking about this ground assault and of course if that's true it's about to get much much worse yeah, I know you can't be everywhere at once, but if you've been, I know that the, one of the conversations going on here is trying to get people li- airlifted out of out of Israel because, of course, there are almost no flights anymore. Uh, has that been something? I mean, have you met Canadians, and what's their sense of wanting to get home at this point? Yeah, it's. We, I mean, we talked to a lot of Canadians who who want to get home. Um, I mean, I spoke to people in, in you know somewhat desperate situations. There was a, a young mother, a single mother with an eleven month old who's pregnant in Tel Aviv, who had a rocket land near her house, and she is desperate to get out of out of there. Um, and so, yeah, people have been frustrated by the pace of the Canadian government response. I mean, we saw some. You know, we've seen already countries lifting airlifting their citizens out of out of this place, whereas we heard this morning from uh, Melanie Jolie in Ottawa that uh, Canada is committing to send a flight by the end of this week. Um, so, yeah, a lot of Canadians I've been speaking to are anxiously looking to get on that flight. And I've also met some Ben who aren't going anywhere. I met an, an impressive woman in, um, in Jerusalem today in the old city who was there helping a volunteer aid organization, you know, receive and send supplies to the front lines and, um, she says, you know, she wants to stay as long as she feels like she can help. So, um, yes, so a lot of Canadians want to leave, but there are some who, who are going to stick it out and, and want to help if they can. And Jeff, I guess just in the, in the coming days, what are you looking for? What's what do you think is, is going to where do you think this is all going? I guess really the airlifts and the ground assault. It feels like that's where the story is headed in the next in the next 48 hours. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the ground assault is 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 what we're all watching for. Um, and it was hard to gauge how imminent that was, though I have to say, after listening to the Israeli prime minister this evening, I, it's feeling more imminent, uh, in my view. Um, 
that, you know, he came out and just spoke so strongly that it really felt like he was, he was setting the stage here. If, you know, if he, not that he needed to anymore, I suppose, but that, that the expectation that I have after listening to him speak is that that grounded assault is imminent. Um, and, and, you know, they're talking in languages about wiping Hamas off the face of the earth, uh, um, so, and, and saying that Hamas is worse than ISIS and, and all of this sort of language. So I, I think that's what we'll be watching. And then, you know, as you noted, the Aravac is, is, you know, can they get Canadians out of Israel fast enough? Um, as, yeah, as before a that happens, because, yep. because, yeah, because that's the thing is once that ground assault happens, um, you know, it's, it's anyone's guess as to how that will play out, not only in Gaza, but in the region. Well, Jeff, as always, uh, stay safe and thank you. Thanks, Ben. Take care. Apple Jacks when I was a kid. Let me tell you a personal story. When I was growing up, I wasn't really allowed to have any sugar at all. We had no sugary cereal in the house, no cookies, no nothing. No nothing. We didn't even have cable or a color TV. So every once in a while, I'd get the chance to go to my grandmother's place, my grandparents, my grandfather and grandmother. And uh, I would get to watch cable on color TV and eat just copious amounts of cereal, mostly Apple Jacks, because they were my absolute favorite, um, even when they added the cinnamon. Loved Apple Jacks. Um, so, you know, I, I would sort of go into this kind of bizarre sugar high. And also, I, you know, I don't think I ever stopped to think if I was full or not. So out of curiosity, I looked up ingredients in Apple Jacks. And, and even today, if you look them up, I mean, it, it looks like, it looks like you know, it, it looks like a Tolstoy novel. There's so many things in that uh in that in those apple jacks uh and so i was really struck while reading my next guest's book called ultra processed people that one of the stories that he tells is about his young daughter lyra uh inhaling bowls she's about three or four inhaling bowls of cocoa pops inhaling them long after she could possibly be hungry for more. And he just sort of watches in amazement because he can't understand why this food of all foods is just something that she'll just inhale. And again, it is one of a very many, one of a whole bunch of human moments in Dr. Chris Van Tulikin's book called Ultra, Ultra Processed People, Why We Can't Stop Eating Food That Isn't Food. What am I talking about? They're called ultra processed foods. They're edible products made from manufactured ingredients that have been extracted from foods, processed, reassembled to create these sort of shelf-stable, tasty, often convenient meals. And unlike the Apple Jacks of my childhood, which formed a very rare, if much coveted part of my diet, they form a huge part of our diet now. They make up nearly 60% of what the typical adult eats in the UK, the US here, nearly 70% of what some kids eat. And the categories include everything, lots of familiar stuff, cookies, sodas, jarred sauces, cereal, packaged breads, frozen meals, even ice cream. And they dominate our food supply, as I was mentioning. About last I could find for Canada back in 2016, per capita sales of ultra-processed foods, per capita, that's each one of us, were estimated at 275 
kilos per year. Now, that seems really high, but that's the stat that I found. It's the fourth highest amongst 80 countries. And there is a large and growing body of evidence that is consistently linked overconsumption of these kinds of foods with poor health outcomes. And of course, as we found out last week, more and more people, of course, with the high price of groceries are feeling like they're having to sacrifice nutrition for cost, and they're a bit worried about what kind of impact that's having on their health. And this is exactly what we're talking about here. So you are what you eat, the old the old saying goes, and that might be kind of a scary statement for a lot of us here in Canada, Canada these days. Um, again, Chris Von Tulikin is an associate professor at University College London. He's a practicing infect infectious disease uh, physician. His book is called Ultra Process People, why we can't stop eating the food that isn't food. And he joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, it's such a pleasure, Ben. Uh, I mean, the, the title pretty much says it all, right? Why we can't stop eating the food that isn't food. But how do you I mean you're an infectious disease uh, specialist? How did you get involved in this subject? So patients with infections are generally disadvantaged people. They are homeless people, people without addresses, migrants, displaced people. So I've done a lot of work around the world. And it, particularly when I was working in South Asia and in Sub-Saharan Africa, what I saw killed children more than anything else was the often illegal marketing of infant food. And so now my research, I used to study viruses. Now all my research is about what we call the commercial determinants of health, how massive corporations affect our health. And in fact, the commercial determinants of health are the biggest determinants of health. So when it comes to diet, poor diet is now the leading cause of early death on planet Earth. That is because of the marketing of the, the companies, the small number of companies that make all our food. Interesting. I was in China, actually, when they had their tainted milk scandal at the time. Where yeah. does the term ultra-processed food come from? Because I realize we eat processed food. I mean, tomato paste is a processed food, right? But what is an ultra-processed right. food? So that is such an important distinction. Humans have been processing food for more than a million years. So mainly female scientists for hundreds of thousands of years developed modern cuisine by smoking, salting, fermenting, curing, drying, extruding, mashing, pulping uh, in caves and huts and then kitchens. And that led to processed food, which humans have to eat. So we have tiny teeth, tiny jaws, short digestive tracts. We depend on processing our food for digestion, and it's written into our genes and our bodies. Ultra-processed food is very different. The definition was developed in uh, by a Brazilian research team in 2009, and they had seen in about the space of a decade, the influx of American industrially pr produced products that had taken obesity from being pretty much unheard of to being the dominant public health problem. And this was happening all across, across South and Central America. So the research team looked at the products that were driving the disease and created a definition that described them all. And a crucial part of the definition, so if a food has an ingredient that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen, it's probably an ultra-processed food. Another good working definition is any food made by a transnational food corporation is probably ultra-processed. And any food with a health claim, like anything that says low fat, low sugar, high fiber, supports your immune system, any of that is almost certainly ultra-processed. So it, it is all around us and it makes up, whether you're in the UK or Canada, it makes up 60% of the calories that we eat. 60%. 60%. Now, for, for kids, if you've got a teenager, it could well be 80 or 90%. Uh, you know, the research probably underestimates the amount we eat, but this is, this is our food culture. In, in North America and the UK, this is what we eat. 
One of the examples you use, which I found most telling, was the pizza. And I'm sure you've been asked this before, but the pizza to me struck because I think all people buy both pizzas and frozen pizzas at the grocery store. And that's sort of one of the baselines that you use to show the difference between these two ideas of the food versus the ultra processed food. Right. So pizza, disgracefully, has become the sort of um, prototypical junk food. Of course, pizza is a traditional food from Italy. You can make a, a sourdough pizza covered in tomato paste and, and mozzarella cheese, and it's a perfectly nutritious, healthy meal. It's part of the Mediterranean diet, one of the healthiest diets we know about. Or you can have uh, an industrially produced, what I would call a fake pizza, where the crust is full of emulsifiers, xanthan gums, uh, there are spice extracts and flavoring, uh, and lots of modified sugars and starches in the whole thing, along with citrate modified plastic cheese. So for almost every food you can think of, there is an ultra processed equivalent. Butter has margarine, uh, yogurt has ultra processed flavored yogurt thickened with guar gum and modified cornstarch. And in general, what we think is even the slightly unhealthy sounding traditional foods are basically not very harmful for you. Now, that doesn't mean if you make all your ice cream at home, you couldn't possibly gain any weight. But we really think the, the evidence is very clear. And we, we do now have a decade, way over a thousand really robust researched papers, uh, peer reviewed papers showing that it is the processing that drives the negative health outcomes. In other words, we, we have a model of thinking about food in Canada and the UK where we say it's the, it's the salt, fat, and the sugar that makes the difference. And what the research tells us, because the research makes adjust adjustments for all that, is that actually it is the processing. So when you make home-cooked food, even if it's a bit salty and fatty and sugary, that is so much better for you than the ultra-processed equivalent. You point out at one point, I think it's Paul Hart who provides this description of it, that if you were to actually, that it's real food reduced to molecules, reconstructed, and that without additives, it would be a bit like eating dirt, I think is how it's explained. Yeah. The crucial thing about ultra-processed food is its, its purpose. So this is part of the definition, is it's food designed for profit. Now, food as we should understand it, is about nourishment. It's stuff you make to bind your community together to nourish your friends and your family. Ultra-processed food is made for very large, publicly limited corporations with severe constraints on what they can do. They, they have to generate financialized growth. And a lot of my research now is economic research, and we can show that these companies prioritize their owners and their shareholders over anyone else. So the logic of the food is you take commodity crops grown at vast scale. I mean, we, we only eat six or seven things, really. We eat rice, wheat, corn, soy, palm, sunflower, dairy, and then a couple of meats, maybe. What you want to do is take those commodity items, break them down into their element parts. So you turn them into soy protein isolates and modified corn starches. You can then recombine them into any shape you want, and you can dry fry it, extrude it, mash it, and turn it into everything from a cake to a to a pizza. So the logic of the food is to use the cheapest ingredients to make proprietary products that you can essentially seek uh, seeking rent is the economic term you can you can overcharge on products where the ingredients cost the same as dirt 
Uh, and you point out some really interesting facts here, because if you think about it, it's all the things that we recognize as food that is being sold to us. And if you're being sold a product, then obviously the aims of the, those doing the selling are get you to eat as much of it as humanly possible, even if you're not hungry, and and then market it to you, and then and, and then make you want to come back for more. And so when you think of it as as a as a marketing product, as opposed to a nutritional product, I guess that changes your entire frame of mind about it. I think that's really important that the food companies style themselves as food companies for a start. So they say, well, we make food and we're feeding the planet. And so some of the research I've done, we, we can show you can show very easily that when public health proposals arrive at the boards of these companies, they get voted down very aggressively. When the companies make money, they don't invest that in making food cheaper or healthier uh, or, or doing anything useful. They buy back shares every quarter to drive up the value of the company. And th- these are relatively easy things to demonstrate. So once you kind of grasp that the food supply system is really an inverted money supply system, it becomes much easier to understand. What for me is crucial is that while it is sort of fun to paint the transnational food corporations as behaving badly, because they do behave badly. In fact, they don't behave any worse than any other corporations. They behave exactly consistent with their legal obligations. So when senior people at the companies have tried to bring about big changes in in product lines, this happened at, at Danon, Emmanuel Faber, the CEO, tried to uh, realign everything. He got quickly replaced by activist investors. Um, what we need is government regulation because the production process, and I, I spoke to so many people for, for the book who worked in the food industry, all of whom were amazing, by the way, and absolutely delightful people. And they all said the same thing about the way the food is made. It's put through focus groups. So you start with your chocolate coated sugar puffs box A, and there's formulation B, which is a bit different in terms of flavor and emulsifiers. If The focus group eat more of box B and they eat it quicker. That is the box that goes to market. And every single aspect of every single product has been dialed up to 11 to make them irresistible. And we had a a brilliant new research paper come out yesterday by scientists at um, Yale published in the British Medical Journal showing that ultra processed foods are by a lot of metrics as addictive for some people as tobacco products or alcohol or, or drugs of abuse. And there's that reward system that you talk about. I think that's mentioned in the book as well. Before this study uh, came out of Yale, that part of it is that it's activating a reward system in us. And therefore, we're continuing to eat when we're not hungry, just like we continue to smoke when the nicotine uh, urge has passed. Exactly. So lots of people listening are going to recognize this feeling of you know, consuming food, reaching a point where you know in some way you are full but then you cannot stop eating and you and you go way beyond that and you do it at each meal um or with each you know with with a packet of snacks you know when was the last time any of us even if we get the family pack or the the pack for two we never leave a single chip or crisp in the bottom of the pack ever we we never don't lick out the last of the of the box of 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 the of the burger that we've eaten so this is food that has been engineered through these focus groups and through very sophisticated science to get around our body's ability to say, you know what, I'm full, it's time to stop eating. If you eat home-cooked food, people almost never get addicted to even really, really delicious home-cooked food. I mean, you know, you might be a fantastic cook. My, my mother is a wonderful cook. I'm not addicted to her food. I think about it, I love it, but I feel full at the end of the meal and I stop eating. I don't eat until I'm sick. So so the 
the addictive potential of these foods for many people is is very, very real. And when you talk to people who live with binge eating disorder, they will almost always say it is ultra processed foods that they binge on. And it's different ones for different people. Some people it's biscuits, some people it's pizza, some people it's chips, but it's almost always the ultra processed products. People don't generally binge on their own brownies. And and one of the stars of your book is your daughter Lyra, who who you you experiment with not not in a bad way. I think every child of her age has had that sort of obsession with some kind of awful sugary cereal. I certainly did because I wasn't allowed to eat them. Yeah, um, but she, you 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 use the Lyra cocoa puffs, I think, or cocoa pops uh, experiment, and she just tackles those that that cereal like it was the last food on earth. Yeah, I mean. In the UK, we have a way of labeling the cereal. I, I think you have a similar thing in Canada mm-hmm. where there's some traffic lights on it. You know, it's got two greens and two ambers. So it's an okay. It's not too unhealthy. Now, that's for salt, fat, sugar, and fiber. And the, the, you get the greens and the ambers if you eat 30 grams and you're an adult. Now, if you've, you, I bet you've never, you've never weighed out cereal, have you, Ben? It's never. A 30, never once. A 30-gram no. portion is one very big spoonful, okay? Right. My six-year-old Lyra can eat four 30 gram portions for breakfast at which point all those traffic lights go red and and good luck to you getting the cocoa bops out of her hands uh once once she's got got the bowl full so the the whole way we think about food is putting the responsibility on the person eating it to sort of hold back to resist and it's incredibly unfair it's it's like saying to smokers why don't you just have one cigarette don't smoke the whole pack or 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 people who have a problem relationship with alcohol saying well We'll just drink weak beer or we'll just drink less, just stick to one glass. That isn't how it works. This food is addictive and, and it's it's really unfair to um, put a label on the box that says it's healthy, provided you only eat a little bit. Chris, when you look at the impact of this, I mean, you went on a UPF diet and I struggled reading about it because I could just imagine after about a week, you'd sort of be just, you know, you, you would have crawled across the uh, broken glass for an apple or something. But uh, what is <laughs> what impact is it having on us uh, generally? Because I feel like the timing of when these became ubiquitous and what's happened to us in terms of obesity and so on can't exactly be a coincidence. No, the the research is is really, really strong now. So the food industry is putting out a lot of messaging that I'm kind of dealing with at the moment that, oh, the definition isn't accurate and more work needs to be done. In fact, we've been we've got about 14 years of data, um, the best research groups in the entire world doing brilliant epidemiology and clinical trials and research in the lab on on the additives. And and there what the what it shows is that the most studied effect is it generally drives weight gain. But even if it doesn't force you to gain weight, what we see is that it increases your risk of cardiovascular disease like strokes and heart attacks, metabolic disease like type 2 diabetes, dementia, anxiety, depression, inflammatory disease like Crohn's disease, and uh, cancer, all call, all cancers, but also colon cancer and, and uh, breast cancer and liver cancer, but also it increases your risk of early death. So is, there is a very, very long risk of side effects, and that's why it has overtaken smoking as the leading cause of early death. And yet, uh, unlike smoking, and we're having a debate here in Canada about labeling alcohol as carcinogenic, um, it's not something we talk about often, is it? No, uh, partly because the food industry, particularly in the States, part, slightly in Canada, but in, in the UK, uh, has a, a very tight grip on the way that we think about food and that food is marketed and the way that food policy works. Now, Canada actually is putting in your national nutrition guidance um, the idea that 
ultra-processed foods should be avoided. That is going in there. In the UK, we're a lot further behind because all of the charities that inform policy um, are funded directly by the companies that make this food, companies like Coca-Cola, Nestle, Danone, Cargill, McDonald's. So so, so that is one of the, the reasons we can't sort of get ahead of this. And one of the reasons it's, it's hard to talk about. I have to say, I think in the States and in the UK, and I, my impression in Canada as well, the book, the book has some traction, is people are sick of being gaslit by their food. So since the 80s, you know, we said, oh, fat is bad. And we replaced all the fats with modified cornstarch and xanthan cup. In 2000, we replaced all the sugar with artificial sweeteners. So we did more and more processing to the food. And I think people do now grasp that diet colas do not seem to help you lose weight. And that's what the World Health Organization has just come out and said, that they're ultra processed, the non-nutritive sweeteners don't help. So we've got a lot of science saying these are the harms. The thing that we are increasingly sure about is all the many ways they cause all these problems. So part of it is that they're very soft and very energy dense. So basically, this food, sometimes there's an illusion of texture. There's a bit of crunch or crisp. But basically, you can eat it before you can possibly feel full. You can eat more calories more quickly than your your body is able to send a signal to your brain to go, okay, time to stop eating. But we also know some of the additives themselves. They're not the main problem. But the emulsifiers seem to scrub out the microbiome from your gut, the friendly bacteria that you depend on. The non-nutritive sweeteners also affect your microbiome. And they also seem to create real metabolic stress and confusion. Because if you put taste, a taste in the mouth and the nutrient never arrives, if you taste sweetness and sugar doesn't arrive, that seems to be very, very stressful for the brain. And weirdly, non-nutritive sweeteners, all the artificial ones, many of them actually put blood sugar up even though you're not consuming sugar. So there, there are lots of problems with the additives. Um, and then the flavor enhancers obviously also drive addiction. So, so there's a very wide range of effects. And one of the things you point out, and you just alluded to it earlier that I found really interesting, was that a lot of the way we think about obesity uh, has been driven by this idea that it's not because of the foods that we've been eating, that in fact, it's about you, that it's about your willpower. It's about your lack of exercise. And you've gone into that too to say, well, wait a second. These things, th this, isn't this isn't true. It's not true at all in many ways. And, and therefore, we should be looking at the food. And, and often I mean, there's a reason for it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's so important you bring this up. When we, in all, in all our, both our countries and in the States as well, we often talk about a war on obesity. But because we use obese as an adjective, obese and identity are inextricably linked. And when we declare a war on obesity, we're declaring a war on human beings. And we have very good evidence that the main way people who live with heavier weights suffer is because of stigma. It's not because being uh, living with obesity is particularly harmful. It does have negative health effects. But the main problem is people suffer enormously with prejudice uh, at work and most especially by the medical profession. So one of the main kind of messages of my book is it, it's not you, it's the food. You're, you know, if you are genetically vulnerable to eating this stuff, and I definitely am, you are just surrounded by it from, you know, I flew to Canada in the summer and I counted the number of opportunities to buy a Coke between when I got out of my taxi at the airport and when I got onto the plane and at both Pearson and Heathrow, there were more than 40 opportunities to buy a can of Coke. You know, if you're trying to quit, you know, an addiction to, to soda drinks, it's an absolute nightmare. It's an impossibility. So my invitation to people reading the book is not to try and quit the food, but actually to eat a lot because we've got a 
lot of good evidence that if you can engage with an addictive product while you learn about it, and a lot of this uh, research was done on smoking, it can help you quit. So my suggestion to the reader is, you know, dig in. If I'm talking to you about a particular brand of chip or a chip, particular chocolate bar or um, a kind of a kind of cheese, you know, try and eat that while you read. And love and disgust are closely related in the brain. And lots of ex-smokers will remember smoking, but now they'd be disgusted by it. We have it with people. You know, people may have experienced being in a relationship where you're infatuated and then suddenly you really don't want to see that person anymore. So love and disgust are closely linked. And for me, eating my diet, there was a colleague in Brazil who just flicked this switch for me one day. She just kept going, it's not food. You know, it really isn't food. You mustn't call it food. And I I sat down to eat this dinner of fried chicken takeaway and I just could barely finish it. And so I, I kind of want to give that gift to the reader of just going, look, dig in, don't feel guilty. And by the end of the book, you may just simply be unable to eat it. And and a lot of a lot of people have got in touch and said that has worked. But I'm what I'm not doing is promising a, a diet solution. You know, we need to change the structure of our food system and of, of our societies. It's yeah, and, and fried chicken, by the way, I gather is one of your favorites too. So that was it wasn't it wasn't as if you were force feeding yourself. This is something you actually enjoyed eating for the most part. Oh yeah, until, no, I love. Yeah. I have loved. You know, I'm a child of the seventies and eighties, and I had my summers in Canada, and you know, I was denied all this food by middle class parents. So no, I I am as vulnerable. I I have I have been infatuated with this food. Now, now I will be clear. I, I eat none of it. I don't because I don't want it. I'll also be honest. My kids eat quite a lot of it because I want them to have a normal childhood and I don't want them to go to their friend's birthday parties and say, oh, no, no, my dad says I can't have the cake. So, um, you know, we're trying to strike a balance here between giving everyone a kind of neurosis about the food that they're forced to eat. And this is especially true, Ben, for people with low incomes. So, mm-hmm. you know, someone like me or you, we, we, can, we can make a choice and we can spend 5 to $10 on a loaf of sourdough bread. It won't be fun, but we can do it. For disadvantaged populations, for indigenous communities, um, they really, really, in the UK and in Canada, are essentially forced to buy food that is not healthy. So along with regulating the ultra-processed food, we, we're really talking about tackling poverty. We, we, we need to make real food affordable and available. Chris, you make a really good point. There was a study that came out last week here in Canada where a lot of people, obviously, because of the rise of the price of food, have had to start to put, put you know, price ahead of nutrition, and they're concerned about it. So not only are they, are they spending more on less nutritious food, they're also acutely aware of it. And I feel like that, in some ways, could be a turning point, too. People are reading labels, and they're struggling to be able to afford good food, but they're aware of it. And as you put, pointed out, your book is not about shaming people. It's not about telling people that what they eat is bad or wrong. It's about education people and saying, hey, listen, next time you sit down, have a look at the ingredients. I'm very aware. I mean, I, I hope there is no advice in my book at all. And that is because if someone listening is is struggling with this, whether they're struggling feeling addicted to the food because it's around them or whether they're struggling because they would love to eat a healthier diet. I mean, we know people with low incomes generally want to do sensible things and they do do sensible things. It's just they lack they lack financial resources and choice. And, you know, if someone is struggling, all I can really suggest is that they have my love and sympathy and support and they should be furious and they somehow need to make a journey. Um, And I I think this is a journey for lots of my readers, but it's a journey I want your listeners to go on uh, from being 
uh, a victim to being an activist because in the end it is the the market that will will drive a change in food supply you know governments you know telling people what to eat seldom works it's it's people feeling furious that what they want to eat isn't available at the price they deserve it that will drive change so in terms of individual advice i i i really hope i i kind of don't give much because what what we need is to change so many different things about the policy environment yeah, it's interesting, actually, the time that I was in China, there was a consumer revolt over what had happened with the tainted milk powder to such an extent that they had to crack down and regulate it in a yeah. way that was that was safer to consumers. That's a very different environment and a very different scenario. But still, consumer consumers, when you have the money, you have more power than you think sometimes. What would you recommend to some, I mean, as people look through your book and start to process what it's about and what it means, um, how, again, do you know what what is a UPF and what is it? Because as you point out many times, the lines can be a little blurry sometimes. The lines can definitely be blurry. So one of the things I'm working on with a a group of scientists in the UK and around the world is coming up with a much clearer definition that we can use for legislation. In the meantime, if you're looking at a long list of ingredients and there's stuff on there that just feels funky and you don't know what it is, if it says the words emulsifier, stabilizer, humectant, flavoring, coloring, if it's got sweeteners, that is a good sign it's ultra processed. And ask yourself if you can figure out something about the system that this food was produced in. Was this produced by, you know, a small company or an individual who might actually conceivably care about their customers? Or was this produced by an enormous company with obligations to shareholders? And if it's the latter, you know, it's very likely to have uh, been produced in a way that will drive you to buy more of it more quickly. In terms of real sort of shopping hacks, the, the, the one thing I've found is when it comes to my kids, I try and give them real food when they're hungry. So they get, they get home from school and I just put out raw fruit and vegetables before they eat dinner. And usually if they're bored enough, they will just sit and chew on it if I, if I don't force them. So that gets down sort of fruit and veg. When it comes to the rest of us, you're going to have to take time. Like, it, I, you know, you can buy in Canada. I, I know you can. You can buy convenience, non-ultra processed food. There are, you know, food markets and and uh, and even brands that, that sell stuff without additives. So that is an option. They're normally more expensive. But if you try and embrace food preparation as not a chore so much as a thing that connects you to your past, your ancestors, maybe your culture, your community, and so it's a, it's a, it's a practice rather than an oblig, you know, a, a chore that you're doing because you have to. That makes it a bit more bearable. So I, I do spend more time preparing my food, and I try and be meaningful about it. But you know, often, often when it comes to lunch, I'm lazy. I haven't packed a lunch, and I end up having, you know, an apple, a banana, a handful of nuts, um, and actually. That's a pretty decent lunch, but that is the only lunch that's available in my hospital, uh, and I have to go out and buy the nuts uh, if I if I want to avoid ultra processed food. Yeah, lunch is a tough one, isn't it? Lunch is a tough one. A lot of what we consume, UPFs that we consume, are lunch. Yeah, I mean, the standard British lunch is like an emulsified bread sandwich, the condiment will have maltodextrin in it, and it will often be sold as kind of organic, healthy, whole grain. There may be sort of real food in it. 
but and and you know you might buy the crunchy stuff the pack of chips or crisps that is baked or it might be you know you get this of lentil crisps or chia seed crisps that or baked potato crisps mm-hmm. that feel healthier but you will still be consuming eight nine hundred a thousand calories and you won't feel very satisfied at the end of it so yeah going trying to find a way of buying real food but one of the starkest difference between all, all my colleagues in Europe and my colleagues in South America is they sit down and they eat lunch with a knife and fork. And I don't know if this is quite the same in Canada. I haven't worked in Canada. But the idea of eating lunch with a knife and fork in the United Kingdom would be, I mean, you, people would just think you were a lunatic. I, I just can't think of when I last saw someone not eat a sandwich and a pack of crisps for lunch. That is, that is lunch. And Chris, before we go, I do have to point out there is one part of the book that will that will endear be endearing to all Canadians, and you're a Canadian yourself. But but your your last meal is the 1986 circa 1986 Air Canada mac and cheese, which I don't yeah. necessarily believe was a UPF. It may have been, who knows? But but that's your I last. I suspect meal. it was flavored, but yeah, I mean, I flew to Canada for summers, and that was just oh, I can still that would that I would still I would still enjoy that. You know, that would be my my last meal. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. The book is called Ultra Processed People, Why We Can't Stop Eating the Food That Isn't Food. Ben, thanks so much for having me. I, you know, to start off a couple of years ago, I was just really happy just to, to be in a league and, and to stand here. Is, it's unbelievable. But, wow. I'm just really, really thrilled to be right here. And there's a lot of people in my life that... Uh, that helped along the way, and, and I'd, uh, I'd just like to thank Buffalo Sabres for, for giving me the opportunity to coach in the league. And, uh, of course, uh, I know we can make it. Uh, Mario said it, and, and, and a couple of other players said it. You know, family's so important, and I'd like to thank my family. Thanks. A very emotional Ted Nolan, uh, 26 years ago now, in 1997. He was awarded the 1996-1997 NHL Coach of the Year, the Jack Adams Trophy. And it was a remarkable, he wasn't even 40 yet, I don't think. It was a remarkable climb to success for a kid who'd grown up as one of 12 on the Garden River First Nation uh, near Sault Ste. Marie in northwestern Ontario, being named Coach of the Year after leading the Buffalo Sabres to the Northeast Division title that year, a team that uh, had just improved under his under his coaching. Um, it was the culmination of several years of success for him, though. Uh, he had taken the Sioux Greyhounds to several Memorial Cups. I mean, he had been a success as a coach, a great success as a coach, after having a pretty, you know, as a, as a player, and he'd played for many years as a pro as well, including some stints in the NHL with the Detroit Red Wings and the Pittsburgh Penguins, but he had sort of shuffled back and forth between the minors and the bigs. A, a good NHL career by almost any standard, but as a coach, he just hit his stride and was absolutely at the peak of his successes uh, with that trophy. And then less than a year later, uh, he would take that trophy when it arrived at his home in Garden River before even opening the box that it came in, and he would throw it down the stairs. He still hasn't fixed it. He still hasn't fixed it. 2023, and it's still kind of rickety because he threw it down the stairs. What had happened is that, you know, there had been some conflict in Buffalo, and he had rejected what he considered to be an insulting offer of a one-year contract after winning Coach of the Year by the Sabres' new GM at the time. It was pretty clear to him, at least, and to many others watching, that they wanted him gone. He turned down a chance to coach in Tampa from Phil Esposito, who he knew quite well. Uh, He was offered an assistance job in Long Island, 
Uh, he didn't want that. So he spent most of the next decade in a kind of coaching Siberia before being hired by the Islanders in 2006, a year after leading the Moncton Wildcats of the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League to a Memorial Cup. He describes that period after leaving Buffalo in the mid and the late 90s as one of the hardest in his life, in a life that's had its share of hardships, really a time where he was almost derailed, not just career-wise, but life-wise as well. You see him, you heard him thank his family uh, in that speech, and that was at the pinnacle of his life, he was thanking his family. And in many ways, it was thanks to his family that he was able to hold on and to see his way through it. Convinced that he'd been cast out for reasons other than his coaching ability, of course. Uh, he, his return would culminate with those stints on Lying Island, then back in Buffalo, as well as head coaching jobs with Team Latvia, Team Poland. His sons, Brandon and Jordan, would play in the NHL, the latter winning two cups with the Kings and another with the St. Louis Blues. And so it seemed like the right time for him now to sit down and put it all down on paper in a book, a story, a memoir, a story about hockey, but also about family, adversity, racism, surviving in the pros, success and setbacks, reconciliation and redemption. Appropriately, it's called Life in Two Worlds, A Coach's Journey from the Reserve to the NHL and Back. Meg Masters helped him out with it. And Ted Nolan joins me now from the place he's always called home, the Garden River First Nation in Ontario. Ted Nolan, thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. It's amazing. Tell me a bit about the decision to, to tell the story now, because, you know, there's so much in the book that um, that I think people will be interested to read that they may not have known. Sort of the, I think people know the broad strokes of all that's happened, but it's, it's a very personal book. What made you decide this was the right time to to put that out uh, there? Well, you know, I, I don't really know if it was my decision to, to write it or not. <laughs> Just uh, I, I did an interview uh, probably about two years ago now, and mm-hmm. it was on truth and reconciliation and and um, during the interview, I, I got really emotional uh, because of then you have flashbacks of what happened and what you saw and, and what have you. And uh, it was a little bit of hockey, but it was more so about uh, residential schools. And then someone uh, some from Penguin must have uh, heard it, listened to it, because we had to redo it again. And that's when they, they approached me about writing a book. And it took me a little while to uh, decide if I really wanted to or not, because you know, some of it's very personable and yeah. Sometimes you like to keep that to yourself, but I just find with the with the George Floyd incident that happened in the United States, mm-hmm. I heard a police officer saying, "If you if you don't speak, you're complicit to the problem." And I just kind of kind of sat there and going, you know, all the people who who didn't make it through, uh, maybe I got to be a voice for for those. So that's why I decided to do it. Yeah, because Ted, I mean, obviously, though, a lot of us know. I mean, I remember your NHL career. I used to have. I was, I was of the age where people collect hockey cards, and everyone's a hero on those cards. So I remember, I remember the, your your Red Wings days, uh, and then and then the coaching, obviously. But some of the stuff that you put down there, especially your your first trips to Kenora, playing in the OHL. I mean, it's pretty brutal stuff. I mean, even later. I mean, again, when you go back to the QJMHL later in life to coach, but just the. The vitriol and the level of racism is is something that I think even even a casual Canadian reader may be taken aback by because it's so it's so bad. Yeah, you know what I uh, Ben when I, when I went there I I thought I was going to to Disney World uh, because yeah. you know someone wanted you to play in a in a league I never heard of before and you know it's uh, 12, 18 hours away from home and I just uh, I was really really excited that somebody wanted me to go and play and all of a sudden you you get there. And it's not quite uh, what you envisioned. You know, the first practice got a little rough and had a couple uh, tussles with, with some players on the ice. And off the ice, you've seen the, uh, uh, a lot of First Nation people, uh, you know, struggling with with uh, with some addictions on the street. And mm-hmm. I was 
between a rock and a hard place. And so it was just, uh, it was really, really tough. And then all of a sudden you, you get into it and then uh, you go to school and there's some incidents that happen at school. Then all of a sudden you're fighting at school and you're fighting at the hockey rink. And, and it was all based on, because uh, the way, way, way I looked back then I had long, long hair. And uh, um, so a lot of people didn't take a, take a liking to it. So uh, it was kind of sad because I, that's year I, uh, I don't quit too many things, but I, but I quit going to school. Uh, yeah. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't fight in both places at school and at the hockey rink at the same time. So, so I quit for that one year. I went back the following year, thank God. But uh, it, it was very, very tough. You mentioned that just. I mean, you you bring up a lot of stuff about your childhood, which is I, I don't know many, if many people know that you know you were one of twelve. You had a big family, a very close family. Um, you, you didn't really watch a lot of hockey. It wasn't like you sat in front of the TV every Saturday night dreaming of playing in the NHL. You just played because you loved it. And there was a lot about your upbringing that that I think uh, is a real reminder that not everyone knows what's out there when you get out there. That it came as a shock to you because what you'd grown up in was pretty nurturing and pretty loving. Oh, it was just uh, you know we we had our you know we we had we had a tough tough uh, upbringing, but somehow we we made it work. You know our, our parents did the best that they could, and there's a lot of times we woke up in the middle of winter time and the and the wood stove went out and you're freezing cold and uh, you know going to school without not too much uh, too much food. But the the one thing I I really enjoyed and I watched my brothers uh, play hockey growing up, and my oldest brother Rick he played with the Garden River Braves and. And so I watched him, and I, I, that's where I really fell in love with the game. And uh, I, I fell in love with it so much, I even made my own rink in my backyard with a with, with a pail of water and a whole bunch of freezing weather and, and some snow. And that's where I really learned how to how to play. Yeah, one thing that comes through this book all the time is maybe not your love of of the NHL, but your love of hockey through the whole book never goes away, right? Like your love of the game never goes away. Yeah, you know that that that's what I fell in love with. I, I fell in love with the game, the the way you pass and the way you can skate and bend your and turn and and all the all the accuracy of of the game. I mean, that's what I really loved. I had no envisions of of uh, putting on a pair of skates. Nor my my parents. They never said, "Hey, if you work really hard, guess what? You get to go." There was none of that. I'd never even envisioned playing with the Sioux Greyhounds locally with this uh, the Ontario Hockey League. I just played because I loved to play and. And uh, I played recreation hockey. Yeah, you played rec league, right? Yeah, my life. So you know, we practiced once a week, maybe, uh, and we played uh, on the weekend. So that that was about it. But I, but I, but I practiced quite a bit in the outdoor rinks in my my rink in my backyard, and and uh, I, I just got better and better at it. And somebody seen me play, and that's how it all that's how it all started. Yeah, and then you get to a point in your book, and you sort of—I mean, it doesn't jump very, that quickly. But then all of a sudden, you're playing with Wayne Gretzky in Sault Ste. Marie, and you have a great description of, of seeing him for the first time, but also seeing him on the ice for the first time, and just what an impact his work ethic had on you. It wasn't his skill; he was obviously skilled as could be, but it was how hard he worked that you remembered, and that's what you talk about in the book. Well, you—you you know, my my father always told me because we we didn't have too much, but the one thing he always uh, stressed uh, to us that. Um, the one thing you you don't have to be rich, you don't have to have um, given to you is the ability to work. You got to work, and uh, so I, I pride myself on that my whole life. And then when I went to Sioux Greyhound training camp, and and I seen this little <laughs> little blonde kid from Southern Ontario, everybody was talking about. It. I I didn't realize they they drafted players back then. Uh, I thought Wayne just decided to come to Sioux Saint really like just I sort of show up, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then all of a sudden you you see the entourage around him, all the people following him around you. You go, man. This, there's something special here. Then uh, in our first game, I believe we won eight one or something. We had one goal and seven assists, and 
But uh, the one that the thing that really intrigued me about him was uh, his work ethic on the ice. He just worked and he turned and he and he used to tell us, "Watch this move." And uh, I was just uh, I was just amazed the way he worked on his skill all the time. That the coach had to, you know, sometimes had to kick him off the ice because he's out there so much. He set you up for a goal too, I think, in that first game, didn't he? Yeah, he set me up for uh, like everybody else. He, probably a little tapping I, I had from him, but uh, yeah, I, I had a chance to play with him a couple times, especially in the in the early goings when he got to Saint Marie. Because back in the uh, in the Western Hockey League and Quebec Major Junior Hockey League and uh, the Ontario, uh, OHL, it was pretty rough back then. He had a lot yeah. of tough, rough uh, play, and um, and someone would take runs at uh, guys who are not that big. So I got to play a little bit more than than usual at the, on those games. What's I found really interesting, your NHL career was was like so many NHL careers, right? I mean, a few lucky breaks and maybe you're there, a couple of bad breaks and maybe you're not. But you, you persevered and you had, by any stretch of the imagination, a pretty solid professional hockey career for someone who played rec league till they were 16, 17. You know, Ben, and Ben, the best part about it is, I, I think I made it maybe because I was so naive. I, I didn't know uh, the things you're supposed to know in order to to play at that level. I didn't, I didn't know too much about the conditioning level of of the athlete. I didn't know how much he trained at the time and uh, weightlifting. And my my first pro camp I went to, uh, they asked us to bench press. I think 200 pounds or something like that, and it went up and and it didn't. It came down, and didn't go back up. I couldn't <laughs> lift it. To save my soul, then they put this big uh, mask on your on your face, like it's a uh, to test your uh, your oxygen intake. And I, I rode the bike maybe for a thirty seconds, so uh, conditioning. So I had a lot to learn, but uh, I just learned it and uh, just got. Uh, I was lucky to to get better by watching the other people because I I never went to any hockey schools and and had any great technical coaching growing up. But by watching uh, Wayne and, and Junior and watching Mario in Pittsburgh and mm-hmm. Stevie Eisenman in Detroit and other players that I played with in the minors, that's uh, that was my hockey school. Did you have heroes? I mean, was was there were there NHLers by the time you got there? Because reading the book, I get the impression that you just kind of did your thing, right? There was never like, oh, I want to be played just like such and such or be just like so and so. You kind of just were always Ted Nolan, and that's 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 not easy to do when you're. I mean, most people never make it that far, but that's not an easy thing to just be yourself all the way through. Yeah, you know, I I think it's a blessing because you you know the only person I had to compare myself with was was me and. Uh, mm-hmm. I just wanted to be best version of myself, and then when I when I got to the pro, obviously you watch the way the the players do certain things, and and uh, I, I play with a lot of good players. I, I play with Peter Mahovlich. You know, yeah. he taught me a few things uh, about faceoffs and how to angle and and uh, how to place the puck when you're when you're passing it to someone. So that was uh, like I said, I just really didn't have anybody growing up said, "Geez, I want to be a Bobby Orr." Or I want to be a, a Wayne Gretzky. I just uh, I didn't know, and uh, maybe I grew up wanting to be like my brother Rick. Maybe yeah. maybe that uh, that was probably the best example I had because I I thought he was a real good player, and and uh, he coached the men's team and the, and they won the city championship one year I believe. So that was that was my that's far as my my heroes went. There's always a point too within the book where you, you talk about. I mean, it's. I guess back then people wouldn't have gotten a chance to see you the way the way they do today. There was no social media. There wasn't every game wasn't on TV when you're playing in Detroit or Pittsburgh, and you're living uh, near Sault Ste. Marie. I mean, those those people wouldn't get a chance to see you a lot. But were you still? Did you feel like? I mean, I, you always said Garden River was home, right? Always, even then. Did you always feel like you were something special within the community that kids could look up to you and say, if Ted Nolan can make it to the NHL, then and I look like Ted Nolan, I can do it too. 
Well, well, you know what? It, um, I was just really proud of, of where I came from. And I couldn't wait to come once the hockey season was over to go back home. And uh, they treated me just like uh, they treated me before I left. I was no big, uh, no big deal. Everybody wow. was important and everybody's uh, everybody's the same. And that's one thing I, I really loved about back home. They didn't treat me anything different. Uh, so, you know, sometimes when you, when you, especially when you're young, if you get your britches a little bit too high and you think you're a little bit more important than somebody else, uh, uh, I, I've seen people do that way too, but, uh, thank God I was very grounded and, and the family made sure I, I stayed that way. Yeah. I guess having 11 brothers and sisters, they keep you in your, keep you, you're the third youngest, right? They keep you in your place no matter what you do. Oh, no, no question. You you then end up coaching. I mean, you you then like, and very few players make this transition successfully. By the way, um, but it happens pretty quick for you that you go, you sort of retire from from your professional career, and then you end up coaching. How did that happen? Well, you know what? After I was done playing, because I had to go through so much, um, uh, when I retired, it was probably one of the happier days that I that I've, I've had because wow. I didn't have to fight through the the racism anymore. I didn't have to fight through the the bullying anymore. I mean, it, it was a tough game and and moving away from home anymore. So, uh, I was so happy when I retired that I could do something that uh, I thought maybe I would enjoy more, be a police officer or get in some kind of business line and and I went back to school. I went to back to Lake Superior State University, which is uh, in in Michigan, which right. is a border town to Sault Ste. Marie. Mm-hmm. And I ran to the uh, a coach of the Lake Superior State Lakers. He asked me to come out to help him during practice one day, which I, I happily obliged. And I, I really enjoyed it. And here's the name uh, people see in the book, Phil, es- Phil Esposito. Yes, he comes up a lot. <laughs> Speaking of yeah, the Sioux. He, uh, yeah, yeah, he owned yeah. the Sioux and he asked me what I was doing helping uh, the American team. And uh, so anyways, long story short, he asked me to uh, be a part of his uh, his team. And within within a month, month and a half, I think, they, they fired the head coach and he asked me to take over, which I, I declined immediately uh, because I, I didn't know how to coach. And I, I had no inklings of, of being a coach. So he just asked if I'd finish off the year for him. And uh, anyways, it was the same thing when I when I played. You know, people thought I couldn't. Uh, they didn't give me a, a fair opportunity. And here I was doing, I thought, doing Phil a favor. And the fans were booing us. We weren't very, the team wasn't very good. And I was awful as a coach. So that's why I took it personally. And I just, geez, I, I think I could do this. I had to learn. And anyways, we went back the following year and uh uh, we did much better, and we went to three straight Memorial Cups, and yeah. that's where that's where I really fell in love with the game because the game to me was I just wish someone would have treated me uh, a little bit differently when when I played when when I had a bad game, you know, never asked me why they, they never uh, you know Ted how how you feeling no one ever asked me on that personal front so when I became a coach that's one thing I wanted to make sure I paid attention to all the players whether they had uh, three minutes of ice time or whether they had 30 minutes of ice time it didn't really matter to me but uh, I just really felt everybody had to be treated equally and that's what I did as a coach you know Ted reading the book one thing that struck me and I I don't you, you can disagree with me on this it feels like hockey kind of found you and that you probably would have been good at anything and yet you just found yourself first playing, then coaching, and you just happened to be good at it. And I got the impression it might be because if you'd ended up sort of, you know, at the local post office or as a cop, you would have been good at that too. But hockey found you and it's just a lot more high profile. Uh, I just get the sense you're dedicated. You know, you seem to pick up things really quickly. You certainly love the, as a coach, you love the players that, that play for you. Like you just sort of had the, you just you used to, you figured things out really quickly. Well, you, you know, Ben, uh, I, I think that's uh 
I, I just wanted to play. I mean, I, I just, uh, when I fell in love with the game early and watched my brothers play and then all of a sudden we got a TV and then you get to see the NHL teams on, on TV. And I, for whatever, I just fell in love with the game. I, I thought the game was uh, just a wonderful uh, sport to play. You know, baseball was my number one, but baseball, yeah. hockey was number two. It, it's just one of those sports that I, and uh, the more I played, uh, the, the higher you get, and then when you try out for a team, and then when they say you're not good enough to make it, and and I always beg to differ because I, I thought I was better than than some of the players who who did make it, but I, I just went back to to the team that I went, and I said I'll, I'll show them next year, and I'll show them next year. So I always had to prove that I belonged, and I just uh, and that's I, I think um, uh, my stubbornness, my uh, my my will to fight for something that you. Uh, that you believed you could do yet. No one would give you that opportunity. So I just fought and fought and eventually I made it, but uh, I certainly didn't, I uh, didn't have the plans on, on being a professional athlete. Uh, or a nor- professional coach. Yeah. And and yet in Buffalo, it goes so well. Um, and then there's the Jack Adams trophy. Of course, you start the book with the Jack Adams trophy, not perhaps the way readers might expect because it gets launched down the stairs. I've actually seen you show the stairs to a, to a reporter. Um, tell me a bit about that time though. It must've been, what was it like? Because you had so much success with that team. Uh, you had a lot of good players on that team. Clearly, you were doing something that they they would have gone through, as Pat LaFontaine puts it, they would have gone through a wall for you, right? What was that like being a successful NHL coach? Because it happened pretty quick. Well, you, you know what? Uh, when, when you have a chance to re- reflect on some of the things that you that you do, and if you had to do it over again, I'm quite sure uh, a lot of listeners would, would probably agree. You do things a little differently. And when I got that trophy at the time, I was very, very upset. I was very angry because I tried to work my entire life to prove I, I belonged. And all of a sudden, you, you win coach of the year. The next year, you're, uh, you can't find jobs for various different reasons. They 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 said I was drinking at practice and all the all the all the labels they've been giving our people for forever. Plus, my mother was killed by a drug driver. Right, and it's kind of all snowballed into this anger. And uh, you know, mental health is a is a big issue. And uh, my mental health growing up wasn't uh, wasn't the best because of the circumstances I was born into. And mm. and hockey was one of those things I used. I think I used as an escape. I just you know, it was my happy place. Then all of a sudden, you you fight through Kenora, you fight through you know early parts, you fight through the minors, you you get to the National Hockey League, then you get to the coach, and you're you're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting. Then all of a sudden, when you think you you got to a point where Jesus, they can't take this away, then all of a sudden, boom, it happened, and that's where the the anger just uh, I couldn't control it. Um, uh, I almost destroyed my own life by by doing that. And uh, I went into a very dark place for for two to two three years. And thank God, my uh, uh, my wife, who I I pointed out a, co- a number of times inside the book, mm-hmm. that if she wasn't part of my life, uh, I, we wouldn't be having discuss discussion. I would I certainly wouldn't have had my pro career because if she didn't uh, come with me, I, I wasn't going to go. And uh, so she was there with the 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 mental anguish that I was going through at the time. And I got that box and would I kick it down the, down the stairs again? Probably not, but I, I do have to fix it. Yeah. You still haven't, have you not fixed it yet? It's still down. There. I got to fix it up one of these days and it'd be nice because my, my oldest, uh, my youngest boy, Jordan, it, he was uh, very fortunate to be part of two Stanley cup winning teams. That's right. That. Congratulations yeah. as well on the, on the boys. Yes, of course. Yeah, and he has little mini Stanley Cups, so to put that next to it would be, be cool. 
Yeah. It, when you look, you know, it, it's of course at the time, I don't think anyone understood what you were going through. I mean, I was a hockey watcher in the nineties and remembered you well when you're in that Jack Adams year, because obviously growing up in Montreal, I was a Habs fan and, you know, we didn't have to worry too much about the Sabres traditionally. And all of a sudden we did with Hasek and LaFontaine and Rob Ray and that whole incredible team you had. It was hard to, but you were very, I mean, outwardly, at least you didn't show that. And yet all of a sudden next thing you're coach of the year and then you're gone. And I think a lot of people asked a lot of questions about what might've happened. Um, I mean, straight up, you talk about it in the book, but, but I mean, how much do you think racism played into it? I mean, from where you sat, it must have felt like this was the last straw. And you just mentioned that. But at the time, were you were you convinced that something was going on that had nothing to do with your abilities as a coach? No, no question. But, you know, that's one thing I won't uh, I won't, um, you know, somebody somebody may say it was for different reasons. But I just really strongly believe that if I was um, if I was born in the same city and I was the same color, um, you, you look at uh, the merry-go-round that they have in, in the coaching circle. I mean, mm-hmm. somebody, you know, a lot of the coaches never, never won. They, they never won, yet they get opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And I just really felt, you know, at the time, I, I you know, I'm not saying that because I, I'm running the show. I just really felt I was good at what I did. And to to win a Stanley Cup, that was my uh, that was my vision. And to someone to take that away from you, especially when you when you hit your hit your stride and you got uh, you know, my brother asked me when I got the Buffalo Saber job. He said, "What are you going to tell Pat Lafontaine? How are you going to teach him? He's so good." Yeah, and and that was the first time in my life I I I, I didn't know how to answer. I said, "I don't know how I'm going to teach him," but but then I met him. And found out what kind of human being he was, and I said, you know, coaching Patty's going to be one of the best things I ever did in my life. And and uh, whether it's a pro athlete or or someone back home doing carpentry or or whatever it is, you know, people are people, and if you treat them uh, fairly and you treat them well, they'll work hard. And that's what I did in hockey. And so I just uh, I just worked at it. And when they took that away, it just uh, it, it took my world away at that time. Yeah. You said you, you you basically became the coach you always wanted to have, right? Was it was it a question? I mean, I, I guess coaching is politics, too. And sometimes the politics is the tough part, right? It's that's the hard, especially in your case, where you kind of did your own thing. As you said, you kind of sort of just did it by instinct for most of your life. And it always went well. But now you're all of a sudden in this position where you're kind of part of this elite club that can be pretty. I mean, I don't know what it's like on the inside, obviously, but it, it's it looks like it could be pretty exclusionary, maybe less so now, but certainly then. Well, you know, if, if you don't go to the coaching clinics, which which I, I never attended, uh, if you don't go to the golfing events, if you don't go to all the all the um, uh, things, the schmoozing, the schmoozing, as we say, yeah. Part. Yeah. Like I said even, even when I when I played uh, when I played down in Kansas City, my, my first year in the Central Hockey League, I think we we lost Wednesday night. I think by Wednesday at midnight, my car was packed and we we're heading home. Right. That's how I missed home. And every year after that, right after the season ended, my wife and I would pack up and we'd head home. So not that I didn't like where I was going, but I, I loved home so much. I wanted to come back to it. And so maybe people just have a different version of uh, of me and say, well, he doesn't really care. It, it, it had nothing to do with caring. It had something to do with uh, with love that I, I miss my my family, especially you know, losing my, my father when I was only 14, 15 years old. My mm-hmm. mom, was, I was 20 and my couple of my brothers and sisters by then. So I was losing more than uh, what was here. So I couldn't wait to go home to see uh, who was left. And so if they held that against me, then uh, that's fine. But when they started making excuses other than that, then that's that's when the, the problem started. 
what was the return like? Uh, because I realized, of course, I hadn't even thought of this. You, you only coached in New York State, which is odd if you think about it. I mean, in the professionals, you coached in Long Island, then you went back to Buffalo. Was that redemption at all? I mean, uh, it didn't go as well. I know you had there was challenges, obviously, but was that redemption at all? Did you feel like you'd sort of seen that part out at that point that you'd that you'd done the coaching, or do you feel like that would still even today? Do you still feel like that was time stolen uh, in between? You know, it's it's different, uh, Ben, with with uh, with your maturity and how you deal with it. Because I I, I spoke to a few uh, you know therapists on on working on my on my mental health and and some of the anger issues that I I went through because of what uh, situation presented itself when I was when I was a little boy. Um, um, at the time when I got let go from Buffalo, I didn't want nothing to do with the game. I mm-hmm. I, I absolutely didn't want nothing to do with it. I. Um, um, I watched my two boys play, but outside of being myself being involved with it, no. And then one day when uh, I was sitting at home, you know, 10 years after the fact, uh, I get a call from Robert Irving, uh, who, owned, who owned the Moncton Wildcats mm-hmm. of the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. And that, and to this day, that was the first time in my entire life that I, I felt wanted. Uh, he wanted me to be a part of his team. And uh, and I told myself going into the interview that I would I would never coach at Moncton. I just wanted to meet with Mr. Irving. And uh, and turned out to be one of the best years of my entire life. I I just really really enjoyed uh, working for him, and I, and I fell back in love with the game that that uh, I let circumstances and events ruin my love for it. So I, I kind of gained it back, and it led back into the NHL, and it even led back over into uh, uh, coaching into with Team Latvia and. That's right. 2014 Sochi Olympics. So, you know, when when you think is things are done, they're not really done until and I just wasn't. Uh, do I still believe I can coach? No question. Uh, will I ever have an opportunity again? Probably not. You, you started off by saying this book sort of was born of of a moment when you spoke about reconciliation and um, and yet reading through the book. I mean, it's it's a book about a lot of things, and one of them is just you. And and I guess in some senses, we look back now, even th- you know, twenty five years after the Jack Adams Trophy, here we are in twenty twenty three. Feels like things have progressed, but I don't know. In your eyes, how do you think things? That things would it be different if Ted Nolan were an NHLer and a coach today? Do you think? Oh, I would if, today. I would never make it because of my right. of my economic background at the time and and how far hockey's really uh, increased with the specialized. Uh, even the, the even the equipment. I mean, some of these kids have uh, sticks now with little aerodynamics on them, with the right. holes in it, uh, like they're three three hundred dollar, four hundred dollar sticks. So, uh, in order to keep up with that level, I'm quite sure I wouldn't have. But uh, you know, things are are changing. Uh, are they changing fast enough? No. I, I just think we we have to really uh, open it up to that. Every kid is is important, and that's why uh, we we do what what I do. You know, for every person like myself who who happen to fight through whatever uh, venture that they wanted in their life, whether it's a, a carpentry or a police officer or a nurse or whatever it is, uh, we have to fight so hard to get there. Then there's there's thousands and thousands of kids that uh, that didn't fight through, that, that could have le- become a professional player, but uh, because of a situation. So trying to change that dynamic uh, and educating the uh, people that our kids are going to that because they walk in and they're a little bit shy, that doesn't mean they don't care. It just, uh, they don't feel quite welcome and just be a little bit more open and, and a little bit more compassion. Well, Ted Nolan, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Uh, thank you very much for having me on, Ben.